Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 6, Episode 9. I'm Rick, author of the just-released Jesus Centered Daily and general editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, and a few years ago, author of Jesus Centered Life. And if it has Jesus centered in it, somehow, some way, I wheedled my way into that thing. <laughs> so that's the short answer. Uh, if you're interested in checking out, though, this new daily devotional, Jesus Centered Daily, you can go to JesusCenteredDaily.com and get a free sampler. 10-day sampler. You can also watch an intro video if you want, and you can order it from there. And it was just recently, well, here's some uh, wonderful news, uh, the Jesus Center Daily just won a silver medal in the Illumination Book Awards. So <laughs> that's a good thing, right? <laughs> I've been telling people that I'm expecting a call from Oprah at any moment now, but so far the phone hasn't, uh, there's, no, there's no ring on the phone from Chicago. So I'll just keep waiting though. But yes, it's, it was a happy little bit of news. Silver medal in the Illumination Book Awards. Um, thank you to all of you who have been so generous and kind in your feedback about your experience of reading the devotion. I, it really does mean a lot to me. So um, you work alone as a, as a writer, but not really. That book was written in uh, two years of intimacy with Jesus around this project. That um, might sound funny, but actually writing books is what helps leverage intimacy and closeness in my relationship with Jesus. And that is exactly what happened with this devotional. So um, it goes deep in me. And I'm so glad that for many of you, it has had a similar impact for you. So thank you for that. Well, gang, this is the first episode in a new series I'm calling Jesus People. So I think we're going to go a ways with this one, like deep into the year, because what we're going to be doing is exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of his friends and his enemies. You know, you can learn a lot about a person by paying attention to the people that love him and the people that hate him. <laughs> Both things are true. I, I love what Dr. P Peter Kreeft, who's a Boston University professor and a well-known C.S. Lewis scholar. And I love what he, uh, what he says about the impact of Jesus on everybody uh, who met him. He calls it Jesus shock. There's a sort of now famous lecture that Dr. Peter Kreeft gave one of his classes at Boston University. And it was, this lecture was recorded and then was sort of passed around and then it became a kind of viral sensation. Um, and later he wrote a whole book based on that one lecture, he called it Jesus shock. But um, I, I love, I love this uh, little bit that Kreeft uh, offered up to his students in describing the way Jesus impacted people. Here's, I, I, I actually uh, wrote down exactly what he said in his lecture from that audio recording. So here's, here's a little bit of what he said. Christ changed every human being he ever met. If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he has not met him at all. 
When you touch him, you touch lightning. The Greek word used to describe everyone's reaction to him in the Gospels is thalma, or wonder. This is true of his enemies who killed him, of his disciples who worshipped him, and even of agnostics who went away shaking their heads and muttering, no man ever spoke like this man, and knowing that if he didn't stop being what he was and saying what he said, that eventually they'd have to side with either his killers or his worshipers. For Jesus' shock breaks your heart in two and forces you to choose which half of your heart you'll follow. <laughs> Isn't that just a mother load of beauty? It's, it's so good. Um, I love that last line. Jesus' shock breaks your heart in two, forces you to choose which half of your heart will follow. you'll follow. That's certainly true of the person we're going to use as a lens into Jesus' heart today. His name is Judas. <laughs> so he's, he's Jesus' most famous enemy, and he's a much more complex person than we typically think of or give credit to when we think about Jesus. But when we talk about Jesus' shock breaking your heart in two and forcing your, you to choose which half of your heart will follow, that really is the story of Judas. So the basic thing we're going to do is pretty simple. Each time we'll explore somebody Jesus encountered, either it was a longtime um, friend, such as Judas, who became his enemy, or it was a brief episode where he encountered someone. We'll, we'll just use the people that encountered Jesus or loved him or hated him as the, our lens. And this will allow us to expand our focus also into the rest of the New Testament and the epistles, even those who uh, followed Jesus but weren't alive when he was. So we're going to explore that um, uh, uh, for as long as it feels like we should uh, this year. So the first question um, I'd love for you to think about here is, when I say the name Judas, what are some of the first descriptive words that come to your mind? I mean, what do you think of when you hear the name Judas? If you're like most people, liar and betrayer and traitor and conniver, maybe pathetic, maybe sad, Maybe those are the words that come to mind when you think of Judas, and they're all really, really strong words, aren't they? It's, it's hard to think of a stronger word to say to someone than a traitor, really, isn't it? And because we're human beings, we tend to slot people in narrow categories, not really as the complex human beings they really are. Like when we, when we think of Judas as the betrayer, we're pretty much reducing him to only that one aspect of who he is. When we say uh, doubting Thomas, um, another disciple who's been slotted, we kind of reduce Thomas down to that one little aspect, and that's how we see him. We do this as human beings. We don't really like to do the hard work, typically, of <clears throat> understanding and appreciating people for the complexity that they are. We like to slot people. That helps us to uh, take shortcuts in our relationships with people. Um, we do this not just, obviously, with biblical characters. We do this with lots of people in our lives. We slot people into these narrow categories and take away the complexity of who they are. But to understand something of Jesus' heart through the lens of this frenemy, Judas, 
we really have to venture outside of these narrow categories that we've seen him in. So with uh, my home group of teenagers and young adults, we were exploring this very same uh, pursuit the other night. We were exploring Judas and the heart of Jesus through the lens of Judas. And uh, I decided um, to help them get inside what it feels like to be a part of a group that has a betrayer in the midst of, in the midst of the group. I decided to play a youth group favorite game. It's called Murder in the Dark. <laughs> it sounds pretty ominous, doesn't it? But it's a very, very popular youth ministry game and has been for, I don't know, a decade or two. It's a pretty simple game. You take a regular deck of cards and you um, count out how many people are in your, your group. And then you um, get that many cards from your deck, but you make sure to remove all of the face cards and all of the aces from those cards that you take out, except for one each. So you're going to, you, you take out all the cards, except for you leave in one King and one ACE. And uh, then you mix the cards up and you deal them out to everyone in the group. So everyone either has one person's going to have a King and one person's going to have an ACE and the rest of them are just going to have regular numbered cards. So the whoever, and you hide these cards, you tell them not to show anyone. Whoever gets the ACE is the murderer. Whoever gets the King is the detective and everyone else is a potential victim. <laughs> and actually the detective himself is also a potential victim. And then after everyone has figured out what role they're playing, then you turn off all the lights and you make it completely dark and you wander around in the dark. And the murderer can murder people by simply touching someone on their shoulder. Or sometimes you play the game by having them make the the, the symbol of the knife across the person's neck. That was that's a little more ominous. <laughs> we played it where you just uh, the murderer touches a person on the shoulder. If you get touched on the shoulder in the dark, that means you've been killed, and you have to dramatically fall down and die. And when one of the other people in the room discovers the dead body, they call out, "Murder in the dark!" And everyone stops, and we turn the lights on, and and the detective gathers everyone to interrogate them. And the group works together to figure out who the murderer really is. And then the detective must make an accusation. And if the detective's accusation is correct, the, uh, the detective wins. And if the detective's accusation is incorrect, the murderer wins and you keep playing until everyone's, you know, dead. <laughs> so, um, the key to the game really is for the murderer to evade suspicion, yeah, right? Uh, they have to continue betraying and murdering, murdering without getting caught. And uh, we ended up playing a couple of rounds of this game and, and we did it in our, where, we, where we're meeting, which is in our unfinished basement that we've retrofitted for the pandemic. We have five windows down there and we have every window open in the middle of winter with a fan pointing out and we have a couple of uh, big air purifiers and a space heater and uh, all of this socially distanced down there with everyone wearing masks. So it's quite the undertaking, but perfect for playing Murder in the Dark because when we turn off the lights in that place, it is pitch black. So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of laughter. And we did 
accurately finger the murderer on the second round, which happened to be my wife, by the way. She was quite sly in the first round about uh, diverting attention from her. So, so the, it turns out that games like this, um, where someone is in your midst and they're a betrayer and they could actually uh, do a lot of damage because of it, these games are really big in our culture right now. The, uh, the board games that feature this kind of dynamic are called betrayer games. They, they have their own niche, their own, <laughs> their own kind of sub, sub-genre. And uh, I was reading the other day on one gamer site, they were talking about how, why these, these, these uh, betrayer games are so popular. And here's what this uh, expert on this gamer site said. In modern board games parlance, bluffing is a nice word for games where you lie through your teeth to the people who you trust the most. <laughs> and he goes on, and the lying games business is booming. As it turns out, people love lying to each other. That last line really caught me. And, and uh, when you play a game like Murder in the Dark, it's, a, it's actually, it's a lot of fun. But why is it a lot of fun? And usually the person who's having the most fun is the murderer. <laughs> why is that so much fun? Why is it so much fun to fool people that you care about? Because you literally have to lie in this game in order to win if you're the murderer. And so what, what is it that people enjoy about lying to other people, betraying other people, um, even the people that they're closest to? Well, here's some thoughts. Um, uh, after we played this game with our teenagers and young adults, I asked them th that very question, you know, what is it that we enjoy about lying to others? And here's some of the things they said. I think they're, they're really true. When you know that no one's actually going to get hurt, and you're not actually going to hurt someone, it sort of lowers the bar on the lying situation. I mean, it's actually the, the mechanism in the game that you have to work in order to win, right? And you're not really hurting someone, but when I asked them, does that mean that when you are the murderer and you have to get into that mindset of lying and betraying everyone around you, that it has no impact whatsoever because you know you're, this is just a game? And everyone agreed, no, no, it has some impact to do that. It's, it's uh, for some people, it's easier to slip into that than others, but it can really be difficult for some to, to work their way up to getting really good at betraying other people. So it's not like even though the bar is lowered, you don't still have some kind of inkling that is this okay to do. Um, they also said it's thrilling to do the unexpected. And that's really true, isn't it? To, to be the one who's surprising everyone else and able to surprise everyone else is kind of thrilling to get away with it, I guess, is a way of saying it. We also have pride in our ability to, to deceive others well, but we, uh, we want to present ourselves well, don't we? Um, no matter what situation we're in, we, we like to regulate and manage our persona. And that requires more lying than we maybe would like to admit. <laughs> When we're trying to present ourselves, like for instance, if somebody comes up to you and says, how are you doing today? And you respond, I'm doing fine. When you're not really doing fine, is that a lie? Or is that just managing our persona? Well, the truth is, if you got down to, to the, you know, the foundation of that, um, we are lying to manage our persona. Um, we're we are, uh, not uh, uh, presenting the truth 
I guess is another way of saying the real truth about who we are and in answer to a question like that. We probably do a lot more of that than we realize in a typical day. So what would happen to us um, if our beliefs and our commitment to Jesus and our morals weren't regulating us? Wow. Well, if we're capable of casually lying in some ways throughout our day, even sort of oblivious to how often we do it, whoa, what would happen if we didn't have the spirit inside us nudging away when we step over the line? Maybe that's why it's a little more difficult to um, acquiesce to a betrayer game um, where we're basically compartmentalizing that normal function inside ourselves away. But the truth is that breaking the rules, being the only one who knows the truth about something and trying to fool the rest of the group about it kind of can make you feel special. <laughs> if you're able to fool everybody else, um, that can make you feel special. There's a old game show that's been resurrected on TV right now called To Tell the Truth, which is, you know, the story of a person who has an unusual life and, and um, three people are presented to the guest panelists. And those three of those three people, only one of them is the real person. The other two are trying to make you think, make the panelists think that they're the real person, right? So they have to be quite good at presenting themselves in a way that can fool the guest panelists. So, um, it, and if you do fool them, it makes you feel pretty special for having been able to do that. If you think about this in a typical day, what percentage of what a typical person says is some form of a lie? Well, I found an official study that says that's about twice a day, but, but the researchers said, that's most likely because people are lying about how often they lie or they're completely unaware of how often they casually lie. So what motivates people to lie in the first place? What would motivate someone to betray a friend? Those are questions that are really important as we dip into Judas's story. So let's explore um, what motivated Judas to betray Jesus and why did Jesus include Judas as one of his 12 disciples and keep including him for three years? Remember, the disciples lived and traveled with Jesus for three years in his public ministry. It's important to take ourselves back to that time and recognize that all of the disciples, not just Judas, all of the disciples believed that the Messiah's role was to forcefully free them from their oppressive Roman occupation. Um, if you think about the whole history of the Old Testament, when God intervened on behalf of his people, it was always to free them from the physical, military, political oppression of whoever had put them under, under their thumb. So it was a completely normal thing to expect that the promised Messiah, when he showed up, would release the Jews from the political, military captivity they'd experienced from the Romans. But clearly, from the very beginning, Jesus wasn't interested in doing that. And it was often disillusioning and confusing to his closest friends and supporters. Um, there are many examples of the disciples just not understanding what Jesus was doing, why he was saying the things he did, and why he didn't behave and act like the Messiah they expected. And that disillusionment was uh, never more profound than it was with Judas. He seemed to particularly 
be upset um, that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that he expected. So what I've done is uh, I've collected some snippets from the Gospels about Judas from when he first began following Jesus until his death by suicide. We know that story. Now, I'm going to just bounce through these collected snippets. This is going to take about five minutes for me to do this, but it's important to read through these because I want us to uh, re-embrace the person of Judas and, and see if we can get outside the narrow boundaries we've placed him in. And then we'll explore some questions at the end of this to, to uh, consider through the, the real life, the authentic life of Judas, what do we see about the heart of Jesus? So here we go. We're going to start off in John chapter 6. And this is the thread of Judas through three of the four Gospels. I'm just going to skip amongst these different accounts, and sometimes I'll overlap a little bit because each Gospel writer gives different details about, about the person of Judas. But, but uh, we'll start, um, start off in the book of John, chapter 6. Uh, starting with verse 66, we'll read through verse 70. From this time, many of his disciples, many of Jesus' disciples, obviously, turned back and no longer followed him. Now, this happened right after Jesus told the assembled crowd over and over again to eat his body and drink his blood. This is my favorite chapter in all the Bible, John 6. And, and this is where all of the crowds leave and they never follow him again. Uh, this marks the end of Jesus's, you know, big stadium tour. <laughs> so from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. He's basically saying, we, we've come to believe that you're the Messiah. And Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who through though one of the 12 was later to betray him. Then we skip to John 12, one through eight. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, a whole pint of this expensive perfume. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Wow, think about how much that is. So, so extravagant. It, the account goes on. Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now skipping forward to John 13, verses 1 through 2, and then 18 through 30. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
to betray Jesus. Skipping forward just a bit in that chapter. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those who I've chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. And then Jesus quotes the Old Testament scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Then he continues. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple who Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Now, this, this unnamed disciple that Jesus loved is actually John, who's writing these words. So, leaning back against Jesus, John asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. And since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Well, as soon as G Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Now skipping forward to John 18, 1 through 6. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with, with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now skipping to Matthew 26, 48 through 50. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. So going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Now skipping to Luke 22, 47 through 48. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And then our last section from Matthew 27, 1 through 10. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. 
That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Well, there you have it, a string of snippets about Judas. And here, here are some questions to, to think about when we consider the story of Judas and his relationship with, with Jesus. So Judas left, remember, his life behind to follow Jesus. And he was a witness and a participant in his miracles and all of the amazing encounters Jesus had with people and his teachings and his arguments with the religious leaders and his debates and his uh, remarkable acts of kindness and his tirades against the hypocritical Pharisees. Judas was there to see all of this and many more things that aren't recorded in scripture. He was one of the guys. He was part of the group. He was deeply embedded in following Jesus, and he had um, given up the rest of his life to do this. So what, what do we think was turning him toward the dark side and why? I think it's important to get inside the mindset of someone who is so um, committed to the cause of releasing the Jews from the captivity of the Romans. Judas was willing to sacrifice his life to do this, and he knew that in order to do it, he needed to attach himself to someone who, had, who seemed to have the power and ability to marshal all of the people to rise up against their oppressors. And what he saw in Jesus uh, told him that this might be the guy. This might be the one. Look at the crowds this guy is, is attracting. Look at the fervency that people have toward him. Look at the remarkable things he's doing. This guy could be the one that really sparks this insurrection that we need. And so he enters into following Jesus with this expectation. And really, um, if, if we pause here for a moment and consider what Jesus Judas was doing, He's, he's really treating Jesus as a means to an end. He sees Jesus as the one who can deliver on the thing that Judas wants more than anything else, the release of the Jews from Roman captivity. And so when Jesus clearly starts to um, communicate a different mission than Judas has expected, when Jesus almost pointedly um, denies and moves away from the things that Judas would have thought a Messiah who is here to release them from Roman oppression would be doing, and Jesus isn't doing any of those things, imagine the disillusionment that would start to set in, the, the barely concealed anger and frustration and, and uh, resentment even that Judas has. Look, I've given up all this. I'm risking my life and you're not doing anything that I expected you would do to get the job done here. Um, so Judas is self-centered. He's really focused on his own personal gain, his own agenda. And he's not really opening himself to embrace or understand the real purposes of Jesus. All he knows is that Jesus isn't doing 
what a militant Messiah would need to do. He has deep faith in this image of the militant Messiah. What's interesting is that by the end of his story, um, he has lost control of his own agency, his own plot. It seems clear from reading through in a more concerted way, the thread of Judas's story, it seems clear that Judas clearly wanted to um, uh, out Jesus, get him in trouble with the religious authorities and even the Roman authorities. He wanted to get him in trouble, but it seems also clear that he did not want him to get, he did not want him to get killed. And it says in that last little section that we, that we read, that when they had bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor, um, Judas realized that Jesus was going to be condemned and crucified. And it says that he felt great remorse when he realized this is what was going to happen. Um, it, this is the feeling you have, you know, when you set in motion something and all of a sudden it's not in your control anymore, right? You, you set in motion something that you thought would end this way, and now it's ending a totally different way than you expected. And Judas here feels remorse that, and, and it even says, essentially, he's thinking, maybe I was wrong. That what he had done, what he confessed to the, the Pharisees and religious leaders is that he had sacrificed innocent blood. So late in the game, Judas realizes his enormous mistake, that his, his uh, kind of dogged commitment to his idea of this militant Messiah had blinded him to the Jesus right in front of him. And it all came rushing into him in a moment. What have I done? What have I done? Maybe even... Maybe even, uh, think about this for a second, uh, maybe even Judas thought that by messing with Jesus in this way, getting him in trouble with the religious leaders, handing him over to them, handing him over to the, to the Roman soldiers, that maybe this would be the spark finally that Jesus would use to start the insurrection that Judas had always wanted. Maybe this would spark a turn in how Jesus related to these religious and political leaders. Maybe he would get all of those crowds who were once following him riled up because of this. Maybe, maybe because of this false accusation that he was enduring, maybe this would spark something in Jesus and he would begin to look like the Messiah that Judas had always wanted. But of course he didn't. Jesus not only didn't get the crowd riled up to try to uh, free him or support him, he essentially offered himself as a sacrifice. He didn't do anything to keep this from happening. In fact, he fueled uh, the path to the cross. He, if, if, it, if the path to the cross is a slope, uh, Jesus got it all slippery. He made it, made it sure that where this was going would end up at the cross, that he was going to be executed. So Judas, if, if we get inside him a little bit, the question inside that he's thinking about for three years is, is this guy really able to free us from Roman oppression? Is he really able to, well, he certainly can gather a crowd, but uh, well, 
but then he drives all those crowds away for no apparent reason. What do you mean eat my body and drink my blood anyway? It just didn't make any sense in Judas's mind. Who is this guy? He's capable of doing what I wished the Messiah would do, but he's at every turn resisting doing it. Must have been very disillusioning. That little scene where um, Mary pours this pint of nard on Jesus' feet, this very expensive perfume, and, and Judas essentially says, you know, this, this could have been sold and the money could have been, been given to the poor. What he's really saying there is, um, you're not that valuable, Jesus. I mean, anointing your feet is a waste. Uh, I mean, he's not overtly saying this, but covertly he's really saying that expensive perfume is a waste to use on you. He's not recognizing the truth about Jesus's heart and nature. He's not really treating him in this moment as the son of God. He's treating him as a political military leader who has so far not performed very well. And he's pretty angry that someone is wasting, in his words, all of this money to worship him when this guy really doesn't deserve to be worshiped. And there's an indication in that story, obviously, also that, that Judas liked to dip his hand into the till all the time. And then he wanted some of that money. That, that may very well be true also. But what is definitely true is Jesus's response to him in this moment is um, profound. It's really reframing for Judas who he is. So um, that, let's just go back to that story just for a second. Uh, and Jesus's response to this, he says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. He's trying to say to Judas, you have the wrong idea of me, Judas, and you always have. Uh, the kind of Messiah I am is not the kind of Messiah you want. I have a much higher purpose. And just as a little side note here, look, if Jesus came to be a militant military political leader, and set boundaries around the, the bad behavior of human beings and give his people freedom and boundaries that could never be broken. But we know from a long history of human history that, that these political military uh, regulators and boundaries never work, do they? People are still people. We still have wars, and we've had wars from the dawn of time. These uh, human-based, power-based authority-based systems of trying to control the behavior of human beings and protect ourselves, they never work. The only thing that does work is a changed heart. And Jesus came to renovate our hearts. This is the only way that the kingdom of God will come to the earth. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with political power and um, the expression of authority that that kills others who oppose you and protects, uh, protects everyone through might. That isn't the kingdom of God. Um, the kingdom of God is about changed hearts because if a heart is changed, then the actions will change. If a heart is changed, then the relationships will change. So Judas um, is not getting what he wants. And he, at this point, does not even understand the, the real end game for Jesus. But I think about this from, 
from Jesus' point of view for a second. He knows about Judas. He knows he's a betrayer in his midst. He knows that Judas's actions are going to end in his own murder, but he never seems angry with him. Why? Why? Well, maybe he's calling out to the Judas who's still inside there, to the Judas who at the very end of things says, I have murdered innocent blood. I have, I'm responsible for that innocent blood now. He's calling out to that Judas who's been blind. And when it says that Satan entered into Judas, if you think about in our everyday life, when you're in a tempting situation and that temptation is outside of you, well, there's this uh, tipping point when the temptation goes from outside of you to inside of you. Where, and the, the reason it goes inside of us is we invite it. So at some point, Judas invites the temptation and Satan enters into him. And now the temptation that was outside of him now is inside and he's living it out now. We, we expect kind of classically that because of this, that Judas is in hell. Of course he is. He betrayed Jesus. He led to his death. He committed suicide at the end. But hmm, I wonder if you've noticed before these little moments of repentance that Judas has um, right before he ends his own life, where again, he, he admits that he has sacrificed innocent blood and that he has remorse and that he's, he's realizing all in a moment that he's made a horrible, horrible mistake, that what he set in motion is going to end up killing Jesus. And that's not what he wanted. And he just can't handle the weight of his shame in that moment. And he ends his own life. It's an interesting thought that um, repentance is what's required, um, a change of direction. And Judas clearly has one at the end of his life. What happens to him? That's not up for us to know. But I think that it says a lot about what Jesus was attempting to do with Judas, knowing the nature of Judas, that he had patience with him, that he did not stop him from his intentions also. That's that mix of embracing the cross instead of you're just a victim to circumstances. No, Jesus made sure that, that he made the sacrifice, but Jesus... Jesus could have outed Judas sooner and think about the weight that Jesus carried, knowing that there was a betrayer in his midst, someone who shouldn't be trusted. And yet Jesus allowed him to stay in a trusted position this whole time. Think about the cost of that to Jesus to, to maintain and in, include the very person who would lead to your death, knowing that that person would do that. What a, tremendous relational cost Jesus paid as well. So yes, Jesus could have released the Jews from both physical captivity and spiritual captivity, but he didn't because that would contradict why he came. He was after transformed hearts, period. He understood that outside forces, circumstantial forces, never can regulate the heart of human beings. Only a transformed heart does that. And transformation comes when we commit ourselves to Jesus with our heart, our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And in that giving over of ourselves, that invitation that we offer, we are transformed. We are born over again. This is Jesus's end game. He wants born over hearts. 
And out of those born over hearts comes fruit. And that fruit infects all our relationships, which then spreads like a virus to the world. This is what he wants. Jesus didn't come to please people. He wasn't interested in meeting their expectations. <laughs> he was interested in meeting his own father's expectations and the spirit's expectations. They had a plan. The plan was to restore intimate relationship with their beloved. And he was committed to following that plan, no matter whether it met people's expectations or not. And all of this in the end means, above all else, we must trust the heart of Jesus. Because we will give over our dashed expectations, won't we? As long as we know that the person who's just dashed our expectations has something higher and better in mind than what we thought. We have to believe in the goodness and generosity and extravagance of Jesus's heart in order to accept our broken expectations. Maybe you have some broken expectations in your life right now, and none of these words will help to soothe the pain of that. But maybe there's a seed planted here that if Jesus has a higher purpose in, and, and your expectations as high as they seem are actually lower than what he wants for in your life, um, what would it take to believe in that? Well, it would take tasting and seeing that the heart of Jesus is way better than you might have expected, that his goodness goes deeper than you ever knew. That's what it would take. And in order to have a relationship like that with Jesus, we have to taste and see the goodness that's in his heart over and over again until we are convinced, as Peter was, where else would I go, Jesus? Only you, only you, Peter says. And our, and our own only you comes as a result of us tasting the deep beauty in the heart of Jesus. I'm just going to close in prayer here. Jesus, you know, we have murderers in the dark too. Um, we have shattered expectations and tenuous relationships and worries and fears and anxieties that even will be betrayed, will be betrayed by our own expectations and our own hopes and dreams or by the people that we're closest to. But I just pause right now to remember that you are a good shepherd and you said so over and over again. You have come to protect your sheep. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our protector. We love you. All right, gang, thanks for listening. Uh, again, this was uh, season six, episode eight of Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. You can go to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for that season six, episode eight for links to what I've talked about today. I'll put a link on there too, if I can find it, Peter Kreef's audio recording of Jesus Shock. So we'll put that on there too, if you want to listen to that. Um, and you can find other stuff that we talked about today if you go there. So just remember, this is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. And you can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again next week.